All right, hey, hey, y'all. So today I want to take the chance to switch gears a little bit to move from Baudrillard uh, and away from, I guess, post-structuralist thought uh, more generally towards post-colonial thought uh, in the work of Homi Baba, specifically the uh, his book, The Location of Culture. So this is from the mid-90s, around 94, and it really is like a, a collection of essays, you know, bring that down a bit it really is um a collection of essays so it feels kind of aphoristic in that way there are points where he could be more clear in some of his key terms he doesn't really address until late late in the book partly because you know the way that the uh, essays were organized kind of makes it feel a little um mixed up however we're going to try and approach it Anyways, with me kind of filling in some of the with, of the blanks of the things that come later that are kind of necessary to understand for the beginning, so on and so forth. So let's jump right into it here with the first chapter. And this is titled, The Commitment to Theory. So the first line goes as follows. There is a damaging and self-defeating assumption that theory is necessarily the elite language of the so- socially and culturally privileged. It is said that the place of the academic critic is inevitably within the Eurocentric archives of an imperialist or neo-colonial West. So I'd like to expound upon that a little bit to think about what he's saying. He, In my mind, it's not as though he's saying that theory as uh, a Eurocentric tool of, I guess, resistance may only manifest itself in one way. And it can actually be found in other locations outside of academia, outside of the purview of the West. But for me, I read it as though theory doesn't need a... Theory has more than one face. So what necessarily constitutes theory, and he goes on throughout the course of this book to demonstrate different modes of resistance and the forms in which they can take, to the extent to which theory can in itself be something that anyone can take up. So this sort of democratization of this thing called theory, right? Uh, Plato's, I can hear the Platonists being really pissed off, but we're going to go with it anyways. So in a sense, he he establishes what he wants this uh, book to do. And I can summarize that in one line, where he states that, I have tried to indicate something of the boundary and location of the event of theoretical critique which does not contain the truth. In polar opposition to to totalitarianism, bourgeois liberalism, or whatever is supposed to repress it, the true is always marked and informed by the ambivalence of the process of emergence itself, the productivity of meaning that construct counter-knowledges in media res, in the very act of agonism within the terms of a negotiation rather than a negation of oppositional and antagonistic elements. So this is to say, this this location of a sort of uh, negotiation is interesting, and I wonder how it would fit within like um, a dialectical framework. But what it is trying to do is understand and, in a sense, validate the importance of any given component of 
a, a discussion of an argument of debate, I, I believe, with, I, I will go so far as to say with exception, and that's not what he's saying, but what, what I am saying. And to what extent our reliance on a sort of, uh, or a politics of negation, or theories of negation, are in themselves methods of erasure, of silencing, what have you, that actually operate against acts of resistance, acts against theory as something that can be adopted, that can transform, and that can ultimately adapt to match a certain societal or cultural framework. So he clarifies this explicitly when he states that when I talk of negation, sorry, when I talk of negotiation rather than negation, it is to convey a temporality that makes it possible to conceive of the articulation of antagonistic or contradictory elements, a dialectic without the emergence of a teleological or transcendent history, and beyond the prescriptive form of symptomatic reading, where the nervous, um, sorry, where the nervous ticks, nervous ticks on the surface of ideology reveal the real materialist contradiction that history embodies. All right, I'll take this moment to say, Baba is not a fantastic writer. Uh, there should be commas or there aren't. Sentences should be much shorter. And overall, much of it doesn't make a lot of sense or it's very difficult to sift out his argument. So over the course of this, if I get stumped reading something, well, there's a good chance it's just my, my reading ability is weak for whatever reason. But please give me the benefit of the doubt and assume that there are moments where it's actually difficult to understand. So he defines it negotiation specifically um, as the structure of iteration which informs political movements that attempt to articulate antagonistic and oppositional elements. So with the term iteration, uh, two things are being connoted here, two things are being implied. Firstly, there is the a sort of verbal element, but as we will come to see throughout the course of this text, that it doesn't, you know, not it's not necessarily verbal from speech but can manifest itself in many different forms. So the way that one's uh, presentation of themselves is a sort of verbality, is a sort of speaking, or anything of that sort. And then the second component of iteration is its repeatability, right? So a sort of uh, repetition that works to subvert, you know, by a sort of slow poking at um, a locus of power or a locus of a sort of oppression, and how that works to undermine that oppression, to kind of get under it, not through A, he is specific to say this, without the redemptive rationality of sublation or transcendence, fundamentally to overthrow something without the notion that there is like, you know, that idea of that fundamental truth or that uh, transcendental component that we can attain, that we can achieve, but rather how it's a constant struggle. So very Hegelian, well, without the the end goal of history, or that, that perfect idea of history, or whatever that might be, or the end of history. But how this dialectical sequence keeps going. Now this is an idea I've, I have a lot of interest in, because if we think sort of in opposition to what Baba's project here, you know, we can think of it just very briefly in the way that I outlined, you know, a kind of approach to it, thinking about speech not necessarily as being located in you know, the act of speaking, but how it can take on many different forms. We can align this project against that of, in a sense, Spivak's. 
So when Spivak asks, can the subaltern speak? I wonder to what extent that that sort of speech relies on the subaltern figure or the subaltern voice adopting a sort of, you know, Western uh, perspective or as Fanon might might say it, um, blackface, white mask. To which I think homie Baba is responding or at least thinking about because he wants to think of resistance as not necessarily being something that falls under the responsibility of the individual per se, but rather it's about the individual's just being in their cultural identity, in their in their cultural or social uh, position, and how that impacts positions of power, how that undermines positions of power without necessarily taking a sort of you know, ultimate subject position that can then overthrow that power, which I think for Baba would simply reinstate, you know, another oppressive mechanism. So this is where his idea of hybridity comes in, which is a pretty is a pretty central concept. And for those that perhaps haven't read this, you might be more you might be familiar with uh, Baba's ideas through that term. But hybridity is that which implies sort of meeting point between let's say two different cultures and I'm going to get into this more once we get to that section but just to kind of lay the, the, the groundwork here how there is a meeting point and how that inevitable meeting point undermines any privileging of one over the other resulting in different possibilities a sort of synthesis if you will to which other forms of uh, opposition may arise giving birth to more to new uh, hybrid moments, moments of hybridity, more m- newer syntheses. So to kind of establish Baba's point in in terms of this, of pushing up against this kind of transcendent uh, end goal, he takes aim at Stuart Hall, which is kind of, which is an interesting, who is an interesting figure, uh, because Stuart Hall is, that uh, thinks very much in the terms of representation and the media and in what way you know are we are influenced by some part uh, by the media by representation or misrepresentation uh, in the media spheres so for for Baba uh, Hall's arguments push for the construction of a counter hegemonic power block through which a socialist party might construct its majority its constituency and the labor party might inconceivably improve its image so Baba is locating in Hall, you know, an end, an end goal, right? A very, one influenced by a sort of Marxist doctrine, but an end goal that has, has an end goal that has an end point. Obviously that is redundant. But for Baba, what it reveals in Hall is this, that there are two significant effects. It enables Hall to see the agents of political change as discontinuous. Divided subjects caught in conflicting interests and identities. Equally, at the historical level of the Thatcherite population, he asserts that divisive rather than solidary forms of identification are the rule, resulting in undecidabilities and aporia of political judgment. So already we can begin to see how uh, Baba might have a problem with this, because thinking about his thoughts about hybridity, he wants to maintain something of a, a messiness 
and that you know I, I use that word I, I hesitate to use that word but I used it anyways but Baba doesn't see the possibility of it like a total you know one world one vision one people uh, solution in fact for Baba that I think that that would be a very totalitarian one and whatever forms that necessarily takes now I don't think that Baba is necessarily advocating for uh, you know a, a counter counter subversive um, doctrine that really just is a, a capitalist um, you know uh, celebration or celebration of capitalism but it's actually something that wants to think of theory as not necessarily driving to a certain point so this leads him to, to conclude that thought that um, that there is no fi first or final act of revolutionary social or socialist transformation. It is always a process. Not to say that things can't necessarily improve over the course of time, but it will never culminate into a single point in which that has arrived. Which isn't to necessarily say that that's uh, what you know any, any socialist doctrine claims, or even what what Hall claims. But it's something to consider, and something we should keep at the in the back of our minds here. So in a way, uh, or he then kind of turns his attention towards the way in which uh, advanced capitalism or globalization, if you will, operates in a sense to also crush this project of a hybridity or this sort of constant uh, negotiation, right? Negotiation instead of negation, where he states that in order to be institutionally effective as a discipline, the knowledge of cultural difference must be made to foreclose on the other. Difference and otherness thus become the fantasy of a certain cultural space, or indeed, the certainty of a form of theoretical knowledge that deconstructs the epistemological edge of the West. So this is what he believes theory, a sort of oppressive formulation of it, is doing. And I'm extending that idea onto, you know, globalization, where we see, you know, I give this example often, like you have, you know, uh, people in the West love to, you know, they hate immigration, but then they love their Mexican restaurants, they love their quinoa, they love their yoga and fireworks. But these things are never attached to the culture, right? They're taken and the any cultural difference associated with it is nullified under the ages of the market, right, or consumption. So there's a distinction then in Baba between cultural diversity and cultural difference where cultural diversity is the representation of a radical rhetoric of the separation of totalized cultures that live unsullied by the intertextuality of their historical locations safe in the utopianism of a mythic memory of a unique collective identity so the sort of liberal myth right think of canada uh the sort of mosaic um idea or this sort of multiculturalism, liberal uh, rhetoric that floats around that doesn't actually recognize uh, cultural difference, but seeks in, with every breath it can muster, to nullify or eradicate said difference in favor of diversity or multiculturalism, a sort of, sure, you can come here as long as X, Y, Z sort of thing. And then on the other hand, cultural difference is a process of signification through which statements of culture or on culture 
differentiate, discriminate, and authorize the production of fields of force, reference, applicability, and capacity. And he goes on, the attempt to dominate in the name of a cultural supremacy which is itself produced only in the moment of differentiation. So both sides aren't necessarily great. They open up different avenues of a sort of exploitation or manipulation or oppression. Now what stands opposed to culture in, the, in these sort of oppressive uh, moments goes as follows. So it, and it is the very authority of culture as a knowledge of referential truth, which is that issue in the concept and moment and moment of enunciation. So enunciation is um, very simply the, uh, the act of, of speaking with a sort of emphasis on the grammar, syntax, vocabulary, but quite generally just, just really speaking. So to enunciate is to, is to speak. So for Baba, the enunciation of cultural difference problematizes the binary division of past and present, tradition and modernity at the level of cultural, cultural representation and its authoritative address. He goes on, it undermines our sense of the homogenizing effects of cultural symbols and icons by questioning our sense of the authority of cultural synthesis in general. So I think here of um, Edward Said, and there was an address that he gave about um, uh, the Palestinian conflict where he makes, he makes a good point uh, that, you know, no one can lay claim to land first and foremost. And then he goes on to say why, you know, he, he, he advocates for the, um, the Palestinian people, obviously. But that, that point holds, and I think it's important here, where Baba sees a, a, almost like a, an oppressive simulation effect, where there is a consolidation under the icons and symbols of a given culture to solidify, sort of crystallize a cultural identity that can then be, you know, absorbed by other ones or can then fall outside of the domain of negotiate, negoti neg negotiation that would in itself be a process for change or be a driver for change, a sort of catalyst for that. So in the act of enunciation, the, uh, the speaker is, in Baba's terms, split, right? And this is a split I would contend is not just a, a binary split, but rather is, you know, sort of fractalization broken down into many parts uh, that are then, you know, you know, broken down to their endpoint almost and then reformed, re-put together, allowing for new possibilities, right, for change, for difference to uh, necessarily develop. So it is these forms of enunciation, these forms of address in, its, in themselves and how they are iterative, right, so how they are repetitive in some form um, that they or how we, it allows us to, for us to begin to understand why hierarchical claims, he writes, to the inherent originality of purity of cultures are untenable. So what all of this opens up to kind of close off the first chapter is a willingness to descend into that alien territory where he writes he has led us. Uh, we may reveal that the theoretical recognition of the split space of enunciation may open the way to conceptualizing an international culture based not on the exoticism of culturalism, of multiculturalism, or the diversity of cultures, but on the inscription and articulation of culture's hybridity, which can never be grounded, right? It can't be located. So the second chapter is go, uh, going into, uh, it's called Interrogating Identity. So how he uses uh, Fanon. 
So there was a point in the first chapter when he mentions uh, how Fanon looked to Lacan, how Fanon relied on Lacan's theory of psychoanalysis to essentially construct his own post-colonial theory, which is really interesting because, you know, on first glance you might think, oh, how do you, how do you square that? How do you put Lacan in dialogue with post-colonial theory? Well, Baba sees uh, Fanon doing exactly that. And we'll get into how he does that. So as Baba recognizes, or as Baba states, the body of his work, Fanon, splits between a Hegelian Marxist dialectic, a phenomenological affirmation of self and other, and the psychoanalytic ambivalence of the unconscious. In his desperate doom search for a dialectic of deliverance, Fanon explores the edge of these modes of thought, his Hegelianism restores hope to history, his existentialist evocation of the I restores the presence of the marginalized, his psychoanalytic framework illuminates the madness of racism, the pleasure of pain, the agonistic fantasy of political power. So all this is kind of made possible by the uh, observation or the image that Baba um, puts forth where he states that the white man's eyes break up the black man's body, and in the act of epistemic violence, its own frame of reference is transgressed, its field of vision disturbed. And he goes on asking, or putting forth Fanon's question, what does the black man want? So what Fanon is doing, according to Baba, is radically questioning the formation of both individual and social authority as they come to be developed in the discourse of social sovereignty. So this social sovereignty can be understood in many different ways, right? If we think of the phenomenological aspect of the self and the other, or of the uh, psychoanalytic concept of the unconscious, there is this sort of, uh, I guess, notion in Fanon that advocates for this sort of individual subject that is able to, in part, engage with the world, engage, like phenomenologically, to be an agent in said world, and then can you know, open the possibility for such forms of of resistance. So in relation to this selfhood, to this individuality, Baba makes clear that it is always in relation to the place of the other that colonial desire is articulated, the phantasmic space of possession that no one subject can singly, singly or fixedly occupy, and therefore permits the dream of the inversion of roles. So here we can see uh, where Baba is going to go with this. And in my mind, he takes up Fanon in the psychoanalytic realm. So Baba wants to think about resistance similar to Fanon as being something of a, uh, n something that can derive from a sort of self-other split, but is one that is, that undermines, that is able to undermine through the unconscious. Where it is that aspect of ourselves, the sort of unheimlich, that comes to undo us. So what it means to be a subject with desires, with an unconscious, with any sort of kind of libidinalness, it comes down to being confronted with us being confronted with an ontological problem of being, but with the discursive strategy of the moment of interrogation, a moment in which the demand for identification becomes primarily a response to other questions of signification signification and desire, culture, and politics. So then we are faced with a process of doubling, where that sort of other figure, or what we call the other, is not necessarily separate from whatever the 
in-group is or that the self-group is, but is actually very much a part of it. And it's by its being a part of it that it undermines, overthrows in a sense without, you know, of course, as I stated in the beginning, not by a sort of, um, by mobilizing a sort of anti-colonial, I guess, persona or, or a sort of movement, but simply through these iterative type utterances or enunciations, just by being in a sense, and how being is that being is very repetitive, right? Because being is constant, unless of course it comes into contact with a very powerful system that is able to eradicate said said difference. But that's not exactly what we're getting into here. So. Th- For Baba, the desire for the other is doubled by the desire in language, which splits the difference between self and other so that both positions are partial. Neither is sufficient unto itself, right? So one constitutes the other. Self constitutes other, and other constitutes self. So this is sort of uh, getting at the Lacanian notion that, I guess, the unconscious works like a language, right? With metaphors uh, and metonymies, thinking about his uh, seminars, Seminar 6, 1959 or something like that. I think it was when he was in Ireland. But it's in that capacity that we can begin to understand this sort of relationship, how it is in many ways a linguistic one, right? It does open itself up to the domain of representation. So of this, Baba sort of proposes a, a a pragmatics or sort of praxis to his work where he says that it is only by understanding the ambivalence and the antagonism of the desire of the other. So if we think back that, how that desire of the other is in part very much the desire of, of the self that opposes said other. And he continues, only by understanding, sorry, I'll just repeat it, only by understanding the ambivalence and the antagonism of the desire of the other that we can avoid the increasingly facile adoption of the notion of a homogenized other for a celebratory oppositional politics of the margins of minorities, allowing that negotiation to come in, to take place. That was my my adding in that negotiation bit. But Baba sees in Fanon something of a, a missed opportunity, where he sees him in Fanon in uh, black skin, white masks, is a sp- a desire to locate in the colonial subject or the colonial identity only said identity because of the colonial moment or the creation of such identity because of the colonial moment. Whereas, and this is how Baba sort of wants to reevaluate that by stating that it is as if Fanon is fearful of his most radical insights that the politics of race will not be entirely contained within the humanist myth of man or economic necessity or historical progress, for its psychic effects question such forms of determinism that social sovereignty and human subjectivity are only realizable in the order of otherness, and how there is that necessity in part, and there can't be an establishment of such institutions as economic necessity, historical progress, anything like that, unless there is the consolidation of something of a subject position that can, according to Baba, only really come into fruition if there is that sort of other, right? The big other, like with Zizek might say, necessarily for the maintenance of said self-position. 
So from this, from Fanon, he moves into his next chapter, the third chapter, called The Other Question, by thinking about fixity, about cultural uh, homogenization or sort of crystallization, solidification, of which he writes that the stereotype, which is its major discursive strategy, is a form of knowledge and identification that vacillates between what is always in place, already known, and something that must be anxiously repeated, as if the essential duplicity of the Asiatic or the bestial, bestial sexual license of the African that needs no proof can never really, in discourse, be proved. So he lays out his thesis and what he wants to do by stating that his reading of colonial discourse suggests that the point of intervention should shift from the ready recognition of images as positive or negative. So this is kind of this is very much aligned with some of Baudrillard's early work, where he doesn't see a redemption of the image or of the media. I continue here with Baba. So images as positive or, or negative to an understanding of the processes of subjectification made possible and plausible through stereotypical discourse. So in what way then does the other come to come to us in the form of representation? Again, this is the other that has some kind of indubitable affinity with that self, with us. And to what extent that representation, if it does have some kind of fundament, fundamental location within the actual being, a being constructed, of course, so dealing within with simulacrum here, right? We're, we're dealing with a copy of a copy. To what extent can our analysis of said representation operate to effectively undermine in part this sort of selfhood that we've constructed for ourselves and denied to others? So before Baba really gets into it himself, and he's, he's slow getting into it, and I'm not sure he actually really unravels this issue that he brings up, he states of Said, so this results in Said's inadequate attention to representation as a concept that articulates the historical and fantasy in the production of the political effects of discourse. He rightly rejects the notion of Orientalism as the misrepresentation of an Oriental essence, However, having introduced the concept of discourse, he does not face up to the problems it creates for an instrumentalist notion of power knowledge that he seems to require. The problem is summed up by his ready acceptance of the view that representations are formations, or as Roland Balp has said of all the operations of language, they are deformations. So Baba doesn't want to just simply disavow these sort of representations, rather, and again, thinking of enunciation, thinking of iteration, these things that can only really take effect if they are taken away from a sort of tr transcendentalism. And I would go so far as to say even like a transcendentalism of ism of origin, of reality, of a truthfulness. How we must take representation seriously in evaluating the, the extent to which they play the role of not only creating the other in it, in their fixity in a sort of stereotypical f fixed position, but actually do the same or are necessary for then constructing this subject position of the self. Now what the what representation effectively, the form it effectively takes then for Baba is fetishism. So here we're really getting into the, the psychoanalytic dimension of this, this project, where he states that fetishism as the disavowal of difference is the repetitious scene around the problem of castration 
the recognition of sexual difference as the precondition for the circulation of the chain of absence and presence in the realm of the symbolic is disavowed by the fixation on an object that makes the difference and restores an original presence. Now, the oppressive formation of fetishism that has that connection to the stereotype or the, the oppressive form of representation finds its form in the construction of the subject's desire for pure origin that is always threatened by its division, for the subject must be gendered to be engendered to be spoken. So a sort of repression or a sort of panopticism comes into the form of a sort of scopophilia, right? So the, the desire to view, in a sense, of the other, to place the under under a sort of hegemonic gaze that can control, map, understand, take from whatever the uh, whatever happens to be occurring, you know, in the lives of the other, take that for the productive. Uh, good of the the self or the group that's viewing. So in this to this extent, because we are dealing with the domain of images, representations, Baba makes clear that stereotyping is not the setting up of a false image, which becomes the scapegoat of discriminatory practices. It is a much more ambivalent text of projection and introjection, metaphoric and metonymic strategies. Displacement, overdetermination, guilt, aggressivity, the masking and splitting of official and phantasmatic knowledges to construct the positionalities and oppositionalities of racist discourse. So it's not simply as though they are created in a sense to maintain a sort of subject position willingly, but how they come into being in, you know, as a sort of strategy of said position, one that can't necessarily be mobilized, understood, or grasped, but it's something that is part and parcel of their being this position in the first place. And it's funny to note, in this whole chapter, uh, Baba looks at a bunch of people from Foucault to to Hall to Fanon, pointing to the limitations of their argument, but Baba is never totally clear on what he's doing. But in what follows, and what happens to be a pretty succinct proposition, he states that racist stereotypical discourse in its colonial moment inscribes a form of governmentality that is informed by a productive splitting in its constitution of knowledge and exercise of power. And it's almost on, it's on that note pretty much that he concludes that chapter that he, he just, yeah, he's tough to read. But anyways, I'm moving on here. I'm going through this rather quickly because uh, there's it's really difficult to I'm, I'm just taking out from this what i want very much like this colonial uh colonizing subject because otherwise you know there are many it feels like he contradicts himself that he that he rethinks things as he's going it makes it r- difficult to kind of sift out a coherent um project it's still good but it, it, it can make it difficult when presenting it or when discussing it to, to remain consistent. And that's just what I'm trying to do. But really, if you're, if you're listening to this, I would highly, highly, highly recommend you read it because I guarantee anyone else would get something totally different from this because there's a lot here. There really is. So in the next chapter of Mimicry and Man, he, he doubles down on his idea of iteration or the sort of repetition. Now, this repetition, because of how we understood the psychoanalytic sort of relationship between the self and the other, 
operates to undermine a sort of uh, privileging of a, of a subject position that, that you know just apparently exists. So of that, Baba states that um, mimicry represents an ironic compromise. So it's not so simple as to say that there's this thing called oppression and it just exerts itself over a certain point, right? Uh, Baba's whole discourse around negotiation wants to think of oppression as not being, you know, a one-way street. How there is a giving and taking in every encounter. But mimicry itself, he states, must be constructed around an ambivalence. In order to be effective, mimicry must continually produce its slippage, its excess, its difference, almost like its extreme forms. Because by mimicking the thing that is supposed to be, you know, this unchanging, universal, uh, almost aporia, it sees its undoing. But if that mimicry is a perfect one, if it's a mimicry that's like very much like that, uh, the beginning of simulacra and simulation, like a map that precedes the territory, then all we would see is the development of this new kind of subject position, which is why Bob, uh, Baba is calling for uh, mimicry to kind of capitalize on its excess capitalize on its slippage, on its difference, to really make a mockery out of that initial position. What I, what I call initial, I, I don't mean it comes first, but the, the subject position itself. So the strategies of mimicry come out in another form. He splices with another term for that, which is the metonymy of presence. So they are uh, strategies of desire and discourse that make the anomalous representation of the colonized something other than a process of the return of the repressed, with Fanon unsatisfactorily characterized as collective catharsis. So it's not so simply as to locate them, as I stated, in this kind of a uh, position of oppression, where they don't have a face, they don't have an identity, all that is inscribed upon them becomes that identity, which is just, you know, removed from a sort of originality, removed from a sort of initial, uh, from an initial culture or what have you, and is only ever the product of this form of colonization. Baba wants to resist that. So what ultimately happens then is that the fetish, in the way that the fetish, you know, that, uh, that, that sort of signifier being placed on the other what the fetish does is it mimes the forms of authority at the point at which it deauthorizes them. So in the next chapter, chapter five, uh, Sly Civility, he states that to be the father and the oppressor, just, just and unjust, moderate and rapacious, vigorous and despotic, these instances of contradictory belief, doubly inscribed in the deferred address of colonial discourse, raise questions about the symbolic space of colonial authority, which is very interesting, because that is, I, I guess, what we see occurring in that moment of contact, in that sort of hybrid moment, in the mimicry is making apparent such contradictions. So Baba then presents a, a, a passage from uh, from the missionary C uh, from one of the journals of the missionary C T E Rainius from 1818, and, I, and I'll read it out here. So Rainius, what do you want? He asks an Indian pilgrim who responds, whatever you give, I take. What then do you want? I have already enough of everything. Do you know God? I know he is in me. When you put rice into a mortar and stamp it with a pestle, 
the rice gets clean, so God is known to me. And in brackets, the comparisons of the heathens are often incomprehensible to a European. And then uh, the Indian pilgrim continues, But tell me, in what shape do you like to see him? Arrhenius responds, In the shape of the Almighty, the Omniscient, the omnis Omnipresent, the Eternal, the Unchangeable, the Holy One, the Righteous, the Truth, the Wisdom, and the Love. The Indian pilgrim responds, I shall show him to you, but first you must learn all that I have learned, then you will see God. So for Baba, he states that in this native refusal to satisfy the colonizer's native demand, narrative demand, sorry, we hear the echoes of Freud's saber-rattling strangers with whom I began this chapter, with, he began the chapter. So for him, the native's resistance represents a frustration of the 19th century strategy of surveillance. The confession which seeks to dominate the calculable individual by positing the truth that the subject has, but does not know. So it's that very much um, that project of the of the missionaries going into Africa, India, North America, that they knew something, they supposedly knew something that the indigenous people of said lands did not know. And that it was their job to just simply communicate that truth that was deep within them. You know, the idea that, you know, God is with you, right? You sim we simply have to uh, teach, you know, the, the savage about what it means to be in contact with that thing that is omniscient, omnipresent. To which there is that fundamental refusal to even acknowledge it. And there's a point somewhere in, in Baudrillard when he states that, one of Baudrillard's texts, when he states that, you know, one of the reasons that uh, there was a strong drive to eradicate the Native peoples of the Americas was that they had a fundamentally stronger connection to this thing called God than we could ever have. And it was for that very reason. And it's sort of a, a, a mimicry in this way that they had to be eradicated, that they had to be wiped off the face of the earth, lest it would you know, we would then no longer hold that uh, superiority. Of course, because if God is the most superior and those have a better connection with him, him, Jesus, with it, then they pose an avid challenge to us. So what ultimately threatens the authority of colonial command is the ambivalence of its address, address, father and oppressor, right? As we stated earlier, or alternatively, the ruler and the reviled which will not be resolved in dialectical play of power. For these doubly inscribed figures face two ways without being two-faced. So, and this is like, if we take that same illustration of the self and the other and apply it now onto simply the self, right, of the colonizing subject, then we see that the same operation undermines that authority. Right, of there being two different components, two different things butting up against one another that can't be resolved, as Baba says, in the dialectical play of power, where one will take over the other and there will be that constant movement, but rather undermines, as opposed to move, uh, it might correspond more heartily to uh, negative dialectics here, but how that doesn't allow for that sort of change or improvement, but undermines overthrows, makes a mockery, makes a joke of that position, of that subject position. So I think it's on that on that note, you know, and, and in this chapter he's 
he takes up a bunch of different kind of literary examples, journals from different missionaries um, that, you know, I don't, I, I didn't want to go into too, too much because, you know, they, for me to communicate them, I, I don't know all of them all that well. Like it, it would demand a lot of, um, I would really have to establish what they were doing in the first place to make it relevant. But yeah, on that note, I think I'll tune out here because that's about midway through the book. And the next chapters are, are long ones. And where they they are for me where it gets the most interesting. And you start to think of the way that how resistance necessarily manifests itself in accordance with uh, hybridity. And it's all very much uh, the same. Like some of the things I've been stating so far aren't nearly as plain to see as they are later in the books. And the reason that I was trying to make them so apparent was so that there could be a better context with what was going on here. So we could better understand and follow the argument of the uh, first first half or so of this text. So I guess, yeah, it's on that note for any of those, any of you that, any of those, God, um, any of you that listened, thank you very much. Uh, and I hope to be back on here soon. And I'll probably just, I might be able to get through the rest of this the next time. But anywho, I hope to see you all next time. Take care. Bye.